Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the early Sufis, the great mystics of the first centuries of Islam. And we're going to be especially exploring the great problem that they faced in communicating their inner experiences to others. The problem of how does one communicate in words ineffable mystical experiences? Writing in and around Baghdad and what's now Western Iran in the 8th, 9th and 10th centuries, the classical Sufis, men such as Muhasabi, the one who was self-reckoning, always looking at and accounting for his own inner actions as well as his outer behaviour. And women such as Rabia of Basra, the greatest of the early female mystics, will be following the development of a terminology in which they explained and for over a thousand years have taught to others the secrets of the Sufi path, the tariqa, to inner perfection and proximity, even union with God. We'll be following not only how they explained their experiences and taught others in the Arabic text that they wrote during that period, the text that will become the foundations of the Sufi traditions that would spread across Asia, much of Europe, as well as Africa throughout the following thousand years. But we'll also be exploring a more contemporary problem, the problem of how those of us in the English-speaking world access these texts originally written in Arabic. Fortunately, joining me and leading us in our exploration of classical Sufi texts is one of the 20th century's great translators of Arabic. He's translated many classical Arabic religious and theological works, translated sections of the Quran, and also translated a whole series of texts from the early centuries of Sufi history. I'm talking about Professor Michael Sells, who's a recently retired professor of Islamic history and literature at the, at the Divinity School in the Department of Comparative Literature at the University of Chicago, where he was the John Henry Barrows Professor. Among his many books, he's the author of a whole sequence then of collected translations from the early Sufis with the apt title Early Islamic Mysticism, Sufi, Quran, Mi'raj, Poetic and Theological Writings, which was published by New York's Paulist Press in 1996. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. It's a pleasure to be here, Niall. I'm so grateful that you've accepted the invitation, Michael. I mean, you, you're such a, a distinguished and and, uh, and and 
celebrated productive and voluminous translator of uh, Islamic texts. And that's what we're going to explore today, or rather we're going to be using the idea of translation at sort of two levels, the, the level of translating religious experience into words, and that looking at how early Muslims from the, the Sufi mystical tradition of Islam, how they translated their religious experiences into Arabic words. And then the other issue of how those of us, many of us in the English speaking world who, who use English, try to understand that second level of translation from the experiences into Arabic and then from Arabic into English. Uh, and first of all, I guess we'd better start off by defining some of our key terms, as we often do in Akbar's chamber, and this idea of Islamic mysticism, often called Sufism, the Arabic word tasawwuf. So it's a huge tradition, it's an early tradition of Islam, and one might say that it's in many ways, from so much of Islamic history, this has been, in a sense, the inner tradition, the equivalent for theology in many ways, and the in the Christian tradition, this set of experiences, but also texts and ideas and theories. So let me turn over to you, Michael, and just ask you if you can explain to us what is Islamic mysticism or Sufism and what are some of its key concepts and characteristics? Uh, thank you very much. I think what I'd like to do is start by um, going through several of the key concepts um, and they'll each help explain one another. Um, so um, I would view Sufism as a, a way of life and a way of thinking and a way of expression um, that's uh, grounded in the Quran and in the Hadith, that is the accounts of the Prophet Muhammad's words and actions. Uh, and the literature of uh, Sufism that gives us our early sense of the tradition um, began at, uh, when uh, writing became widespread in the late ninth century. And uh, what I've called early Islamic mysticism extends uh, from then through a couple centuries. And we have several different kinds of testament to what this early tradition was. We have uh, oral traditions of early Sufi mystics like Rabia, the famous uh, uh, woman mystic of early Islam. Um, that these are words and statements that were collected down and handed down over generations until they were written in the 10th century. And um, these often have are filled with paradoxes, um, extraordinary um, poetic and literary imagery, and um, uh, reveal uh, the passionate intensity of uh, these people that we call Sufis in their search for uh, a connection with the divine and for uh, a real or authentic life. Uh, the second aspect is uh, after these were collected and sometimes at the same time, we have the first efforts to explain philosophically or theologically what these experiences that um, uh, these early Sufis were engaged in, how do they work? How do they fit in with the cosmos? How do they fit in with the Quran? How do they fit in with 
the uh, the Sharia, the, uh, the Islamic way of life and its its ritual practices, etc. And uh, so uh, there are some examples of those, um, and they're uh, I consider them among the most uh, compelling theological uh, writings in the sense of the wider sense of theology. There's a term in Islam for, called theology called kalam, K-A-L-A-M. But that has to, that's more um, rationalistic, um, technical uh, theology, scholastic theology. Uh, this is an attempt to um, give an account of uh, the voyage of uh, a human being toward its uh, uh, divine beloved or toward its maker. So some of these uh, key concepts. First, what is the goal? The goal is to approach as near as possible to the divine beloved. Um, and the main obstacle to that goal is the Sufi uh, term nefs, or the self, the ego self. And so much of Sufi life and practice is a way of understanding how the ego self interferes with the human uh, quest, how deeply embedded is, it is in, this, in, the, in the human experience. And uh, to set out a path in which uh, the human being will have a possibility of uh, having that next pass away, that is, be annihilated, or in other terms, just get out of the way, to pass away, and then to let the uh, human being experience the intimacy with God that the human being already has. But the nefs has kind of blocked it out. Um, in this uh, process, the Sufis developed stations and states. So let's say a brief word about stations and states. Stations are, comes from the words for stations along the path of a journey. So they're stations on the path of the journey toward God. These stations involve um, a rigorous routine of self-examination um, and uh, physical practice as well as spiritual practice aimed at overcoming the nefs and allow one's uh, relationship to become more authentic and more real. Um, so um, the, in chapter six of the book that you're using in your course, Islamic, Early Islamic Mysticism, a writer named Saraj lays out some of these. And I'll just mention them to give our listeners a sense of what were these people concerned about. So here's a list of them, repentance, Alba, that's um, the first movement of the realization of the human being that there's uh, something's off track and to try to turn around. Then there's um, watchfulness, uh, water. Watchfulness is a kind of rigorous moral psychology in action, a constant uh, uh, um, being aware and on guard about the problem of egoism. Um, and one of the writers in early Islamic mysticism, Al-Muhasidi, who is discussed in chapter four, 
was considered to be the master moral um, theologian of the uh, Sufis. And he traced um, with extraordinary insight the way that the paradoxes of uh, human will and egoism, the notion that once one thinks one has um, done something unegoistic, one says, I've done it. And then one is proud and then, of course, yeah. cast back into that. And it's this constant monitoring of the ego self that then leads toward renunciation, giving up all that is uh, associated with uh, the desires of the ego self, the attachments of the ego self. And that brings us to poverty. And that is giving up not only uh, attachment to possession, um, it's not necessarily giving up all possessions, but giving up the attachment to possessions. Um, and then from there, one moves on uh, to patience, sabr, which is a key Quranic uh, virtue, uh, often associated with the story of Joseph in the Quran. Mm -hmm. For a sense of uh, Islamic notions of patience, I highly recommend that chapter of the Quran. And then there is trust. So let me just mention trust and then the last one. Trust, tawakkul, means that one is no longer interested or caring about what comes in the future or what's happened in the past. One is totally immersed in the present moment. And, and that's often expressed in um, what seem like extreme ways by some of these early Sufi mystics like Rabia the mystic, who, um, uh, even when she was fasting, um, would fast to such extremes that people were, were worried that she would perish away. Um, but that is um, simply a way of introducing the Sufi to a quest for an inner poverty. So when Saraj is discussing the station of Tawakko or um, uh, trust, trusting in God that whatever is gonna happen regardless of what one thinks, um, one will be happy with that. Um, that immersion in the moment um, uh, in Siraj uh, uh, is, um, is really key toward the final station, which is of, of uh, complete acceptance or rida. These are stations that are consecutive. One follows the other and um, the various Sufi organizations around the world all have their elaborate and very well thought out um, plan of leading a Sufi novice through these various stages of um, uh, physical, moral, and human development. Contrasted to the stations are the states. The states are um, experiences and moments of consciousness that come upon a person without any, any conscious intent. And the third chapter in the book um, by El Kushairi lays out some 27 of these uh, uh, states. Uh, let me just mention a couple of them. Mm, please. Constriction and expansiveness. So um, early Sufis like Junai um, have these extraordinary existential encounters with, um, with these states that are like 
human moves except um, expanded exponentially in terms of the effect on the one experiencing them. So rapid juxtapositions between states of expansiveness, of being one with God, one with the universe, one with one's uh, fellow creatures, and clubbed or restrictedness, a sense of being um, locked in, unable to progress um, uh, in a jail of some kind. Uh, a second group is awe and intimacy. So the sense of uh, the uh, experience, the awe of God, uh, the fear, the power, the majesty, and at the same time, the intimacy of God. Um, uh, then there's the um, states of union and separation, being one with the divine beloved and separate. Um, the state of intoxication. So um, early Sufis, of course, anyone familiar with Sufi literature knows that wine is often discussed, the drinking of wine, being intoxicated. Uh, as um, uh, often an analogy to the intoxication uh, of the religious seeker with the divine beloved. Um, wedged or ecstasy, and one can see that um, dramatized um, and performed in various rituals and um, musical events um, around the world today. Uh, and finally, there's the notion of passing away the core concept within Sufism, which is the passing away of the ego self in love with the divine beloved. Um, and that then brings up the question, well, what happens if, if uh, you lose your ego self? Do you see, cease operating in society? Do you become like a transcendent figure? And the answers the Sufis gave was uh, no. Um, one, also stays within the world or returns to the world, um, but with this a more intimate relationship with uh, one's divine mentor and with uh, uh, and what uh, Sufis believe is a more authentic uh, sincerity, ikhlas, a more authentic um, understanding of the oneness of God, not simply as uh, God is, there are no other gods but the one God, but as not having other thoughts, but for the one God, not having any desires, but for the one God. Rabia the mystic expressed that very well when she has a famous set of verses where she says that, um, or a, a little vignette in which she is seen carrying a candle in one hand and a glass of water in the other, and they ask her why, and she says she's going to, um, burn the gardens of heaven uh, with the fire and douse the flames of hell with um, the water um, because um, uh, seeking God for uh, desire or fear of punishment um, is a less authentic form of love. Um, so that's um, this uh, very strong emphasis on ikhlas within the tradition. And finally, uh, uh, there's the nefs, or the nefes, the breath, the nefes, um, to where the idea within Sufism is to um, have a connection, a reconnection with the divine in every moment. Um, and if we have just one more minute, I'd like to tie this together. 
um, in his list of states, uh, El Kushairi begins with an absolutely brilliant uh, discussion of the word moment, walked in Arabic. And he gives all these different uh, views. At, at people who read uh, some of these early authors will notice that they don't go in a straight line. They tend to give this view and then that view and then a contrasting view. And then it, they continually deepen the discussion as they're doing this. So for anyone um, wanting to read um, a very short but exceedingly uh, deep uh, understanding of time and consciousness in Sufism, I suggest beginning with that small essay by Hushairi on what. And at one point he says, the Sufi is the son of the moment. That is, um, uh, of course, we talked about these stations and trying to get over the fixation on the future and the fixation on the past and really live in the moment. And this is a, such a core aspect of these early Sufi texts that they talk about the Sufi as being the son of, a, son of his moment. And the later Sufi, Ibn Arabi, had a, uh, a nice way of putting it. He said, um, different people have moments of different time. Some people uh, have a moment once in a lifetime, they get, uh, they, they have a, a contact with God and then they hold on to that like a possession and they're stuck in that moment for their whole life. And he says the, the people, the goal is to have a moment, not in every a lifetime or every year or every month, but in every breath, in every breath to be um, experiencing that, uh, core uh, happening of passing away and um, in every breath um, coming back to the world in this new way. So that the, the goal of passing away might seem to be the end of a hierarchical chain that we go up and we attain that goal. But the Sufis also say that it's happening all the time and if the human being can get to the point of, of, uh, of, of that dynamic sense of time, um, dynamic sense of time as opposed to the clock ticking in a linear fashion, so that time expands, a moment can be a lifetime in this way. So these are some of the concepts I wanted to bring up. That's so helpful, Michael. I mean, especially the way you've actually talked us through the, the, the Sufis, these early Muslims, as you mentioned, from the perhaps the, the second, especially third, fourth Islamic centuries, how these early Muslims, these early Sufis actually conceived of, of actually the nature of life or the nature of existence, I suppose, isn't it? the nature of being and trying to sort of align uh, human being into divine being, really, as close as possible, while still, of course, being creatures of the of the creation we know that's one of the crucial i guess the the technical theological question the super pursued you know kind of how well how much then or, or the, the question of uh, what does it mean then where when human being then seems to be to disintegrate into divine being and i think what you've also given us i think really important sense of is that that the, the timeless human existential meaningfulness and profundity of these ideas. Nowadays, I suppose, in ordinary parlance in English, 
particularly in the US, we, we, we could call these figures psychologists, couldn't we? But they're spiritual, they're existential psychologists in a bigger sense of, of which the the human psyche isn't, the human being isn't only trapped in, in the flesh and indeed in the, the ticking minutes of terrestrial or let alone work time, isn't it? It's cosmic time, cosmic uh, 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 being as well. And, and in that sense, then a kind of liberation into so many of the, the Quranic names of God, of course, Al-Hay, the, the truly living, the truly alive, and so on. Right. And of course, one of the, the very widespread Muslim names is Abdullah, isn't it? The kind of the servant of the truly alive and so on. So I think you've given us this really, really useful sense by going back to the Sufis' key terms and their key concerns. These are um, ideas for everyone at really every time. And I think, you know, I'd also like to sort of throw in a, my mind sort of historian sort of angle really you know which uh, which is i think it's really important to, for for listeners to recognize that that at the time particularly these early sufis that you're writing about whose works you've translated in your wonderful truly really important volume early islamic mysticism that that these figures are writing as i mentioned in the or, or living in the what the the later 700s through the 800s through the 900s, which is to say 150, 200, 250 years after the revelation of the Quran. So in many ways, they're kind of, they're the equivalent of, let's say, the church fathers in the Christian tradition. We're in a couple of centuries, century or two after the, the, the revelation. And then what it really means, what the revelation, what the model of Jesus, in this case, the model of Muhammad and indeed Jesus, who for, for Muslims and Sufis is the great ascetic, you know, of course, the great renouncer giving these early Sufis are really exploring the, the implications, the meanings, the manifold meanings, and, and, and actually the, the ways in which then the model of Muhammad, the Sunnah, which of course the Sufis are really key to follow, and the idea of the Sunnah and the word we're now called Sunni Muslims is emerging in the same time and place, isn't it? The Baghdad in the 8th and 9th centuries, where so many of these early Sufis are, are writing, it's really part of this uh, the same period and really trying to understand well what the model of Muhammad the Sunnah and what the the Quranic revelation and its terms and its teachings really trying to apply to their through their own lives and then actually by writing then to explain to others you know kind of the fuller meanings of what human life human being would mean so it's psychological in the fullest sense of course it's spiritual it's mystical in the sense of perhaps these inner teachings and experiences but there's also, of course, a profoundly ethical concerns that are really, in many ways, the, the fundaments, of course, aren't they, of, of Sufi teachings. That loss of the self is then of being service to others. And as you mentioned then, at the end of the Sufi path, one isn't just, okay, I'm done with the world, I'm done with other people. It's coming back, actually, into, into life, into the life of, into social life, really, um, after the model of the Prophet Muhammad, who, again, goes to his mountaintop, but of course, you know, after the the Quranic revelations comes down into society. So that's a re these really key ethical and social concerns. So this isn't a psychology that is selfish. It's, it's quite the opposite of overcoming the self for these mystical and existential, but ultimately ethical reasons as well. So, that issue then of actually returning to the world, then actually writing things down then, or passing down, as you mentioned, oral teachings in some cases that then were written down, brings us in many ways to, to the, 
the crux or, or, or I don't know, half of the crux, if there is such a thing. <laughs> I don't know if you can divide a crux. Anyway, but uh, so part of the essence of what we're talking about today is, is actually then this issue then of, of which you've written about so, so widely about ineffable mysticism, these experiences that are by the nature beyond words, beyond our ordinary ken. Uh, but in order for them to be communicated and taught and these possibilities of these experiences to be communicated to others, for this path, others to be guided in this path, these experiences have to be put into comprehensible language. So how did the early Sufis then tackle this problem of explaining their inner experiences in words, albeit in this period, Arabic words and later Persian and Turkish words? How did they tackle this problem of explaining their own experiences in words that other people could understand? Well, that's um, a very uh, rich question. And um, uh, something um, about that you said also in introducing it about the model of the Prophet Muhammad, I thought I would also mention first and then go into that. Um, of course, the Sufis for, for Muslims in the early period, um, following the way of life set by Muhammad is a, a, a fundamental principle. And um, the one small aspect of that that's very important in Sufism is the mirage, Muhammad's ascent to the heavens, to the divine throne. And um, that occurs, uh, it's mentioned in the Quran um, a little bit, um, but it's really developed in the hadith, the, the stories about the, uh, Muhammad's life and accounts of his words and actions. Um, and in that, he goes, he's taken uh, up through the, uh, he, he's taken to Jerusalem, and then he's taken up through the seven spheres of, of the heavens to the divine throne. In each sphere, he encounters one of the major prophets, one or two. Uh, starting with a Adam at the first sphere, uh, Idris at the fourth sphere, the sphere of the sun, and uh, Abraham at the highest sphere, uh, uh, the seventh sphere. After which he passes through a various tests, continually being tested by the angels. We're not sure why a human being should be up here in the, the cosmic realm. And um, finally uh, encounters uh, uh, the divine Lord, who then gives him the prayers to take back uh, to uh, the Islamic community. And of course, those prayers, the five daily prayers, are uh, the central core of Islamic life. They're around uh, that around which everything recurs. So um, here's an example of coming back into the world after a mystical experience and um, offering what uh, one has been given through that uh, to the world. Then on the question of how do how does one express some of these things? Uh, let's start with a little bit of an enigma. The Sufis often compared uh, the Sufi path to the polishing of the heart. So um, according uh, to the early Sufis, uh, you can't you can't get there by human intent, by the nefs, by desiring or willing. Um, and the nefs is always in the way, but if the nefs can be cleared out or polished away, 
then uh, if one can imagine uh, looking at a smudged mirror, you see the smudged mirror, it's a separate object. If you polish the mirror completely, um, one has a sense that this, the mirror itself is vanished. One is not conscious of the mirror. So then if you look at the mirror, um, uh, when the smudge is removed, um, it, you say, I'm seeing myself. Now, if you take that from, uh, from the realm of time and space and you make it into a mystical principle, then who is seeing whom in the mirror? So for the Sufis, uh, when the polished, when the mirror is polished, the Sufi can see or uh, encounter, not necessarily see, but encounter the divine in the human heart. The divine, the God's names, all God's attributes that are mentioned in the Quran appear in the human heart. Um, fully there, not kind of clouded as it were. And in that experience, one becomes one with the divine image that has appeared in the heart. And that's one way of looking at um, Sufi experience. So on the level of uh, language, how do you talk about that? So uh, the Sufis would say, well, um, I, the translator like myself is dealing with, uh, with a situation where they don't use the American or, or English common uh, distinction of capitalizing uh, uh, pronouns that are referring to God and and uh, leaving other pronouns referring to humans as uncapitalized. And normally that's fine. Uh, everyone understands that routine. But if you say he saw him in him through him, well, then who is seeing and who is being seen? If you take that image and really push it to the limit of what the image is trying to get at, then the human is seeing the divine, the divine is seeing the human. The human is seeing the divine and the, uh, and the divine, the divine is seeing the human and the divine. Um, so when I try to translate some of those passages, I had to decide there has to be a way of combating the English uh, uh, way of dividing up things into distinct entities, which after all is a part of the basic element of language itself. If you can't make a distinction between self and other, that all the way the language works with pronouns, reflexives, non-reflexive, everything doesn't work. And one of the things that the Sufis were very conscious of and always uh, wrote about and then wrote against was the fact that language works very well for delimited objects. And logic works very well for delimited objects. So with a delimited object, I can say, this um, pen is either uh, on the table or under the table. But when one is talking about the infinite, as the Sufis believe God or the real was, then um, to say that a God is above the table, but not below the table, is for many Sufis to limit the infinity of, uh, of the divine reality. 
So that's where you get these paradoxes that come exploding out of Sufi discourse, um, that God is completely beyond the world, other, utterly beyond any imagination. God is completely within the world, completely within the human heart, within the very interior of the human heart that Sufis called the heart secret. It's, you know, um, and, and so at that place of absolute um, mystery, somehow these uh, language delimitations of self and other are challenged. So um, one way of trying to deal with the Sufi text is to try to allow them to come through in their real radicals by, by not using conventional capitalizations to attempt um, uh, a personal interpretation on the translator's part. But to see that they're often employing these um, uh, uh, paradoxes and um, uh, moments of uh, what you call mystical or linguistic bewilderment. So often Sufis would say, you know, and Ibn Arabi, the later Sufi, was great at uh, systematizing this, that um, normally we, we seek to go beyond bewilderment. So um, the famous philosophy, philosopher Al-Farabi wrote a guide for the perplexed or a guide for the bewildered. Um, El Maimonides, the great uh, Jewish, Jewish theologian who was deeply um, conversant with his Islamic counterparts wrote another guide for the perplexed. In some of the Sufis, there's a kind of perplexity that is not a fault but it actually occurs when the Sufi uh, is brought to that level of pushing on the bound boundaries of um, uh, very kind of logic and um, constitution of the ego self itself. So logic, self and other here and there, um, that's all part of, uh, of uh, a kind of human self, and then when that human self is um, is um, least momentarily, with all the sense of what moment meant for the Sufis, at least momentarily um, uh, polished away, um, then one comes up with these paradoxes, and in many cases, ecstatic expressions that became very controversial in the Islamic world. Um, the early mystic Bistami was uh, known for, at one point, saying, Subhan, glory be to me. And, um, of course, people would say, well, that's blasphemous. You're acting as, because only God would say that. And um, his defenders, and I, I, um, I have the statement, and then I have the arguments in the tradition about how do we interpret this kind of statement? in the chapter on Bistami. Uh, Bistami is um, in uttering such an, Islam, uh, an expression, Sufis often come back to uh, hadith or uh, words attributed to the prophet Muhammad. This time words that God spoke to Muhammad that aren't in the Quran, in which God said, when I love, when my servant approaches me with um, all the required acts of uh, uh, piety, of course, that would be the prayers, almsgiving, 
Ramadan, um, uh, uh, stating uh, the um, uh, oneness of God, affirming the oneness of God and the pilgrimage of the Hajj, as well as other acts of piety. And that would be the kind of things that Sufis would do, like vigils, vicars. I think most of us have encountered some notion or, or images or uh, experience of these vicars where people recite um, a particular name of God or a Quranic expression over and over. It becomes like a mantra um, only with words and meanings attached to it. And that uh, leads people gradually toward uh, a sense of uh, union and, and um, um, uh, transformation of consciousness. So when these voluntary and required acts of love are done, then God says, uh, I love my servant. And when I love my servant, I become uh, the eyes with which are the seeing with which he sees, the hearing with which he hears, the hands with which he touches, and the feet with which he walks. And in one variant of this uh, uh, account, and the tongue with which he speaks. So if you take this experience, going back to that mirror, looking at the mirror, um, uh, who is speaking? Um, who is seeing, uh, who is hearing, et cetera. And uh, so uh, Bistami would say, you know, this, this moment of ecstatic utterance was from the point of view of, of this immersive union of passing away where the only being that exists now is God. So the only being speaking is God. God becomes, uh, the speech with which I speak. Um, so that's uh, some examples of, of how language and paradox and um, the boundaries of uh, human consciousness are all bound up in uh, Sufi discourse. So you've given us this sense of the actual very self-consciousness and in the ways that Sufis use language. So many of their key terms, of course, as you mentioned, coming their technical vocabulary, if you like, of mystical experience and of the, the Sufi path being derived and drawn from the Quran. Uh, and you've given us a sense of the, the discussions and the debates that, that you know their words, particularly Bistamis, Subhani, provoked. And of course, this is really part of a larger uh set of concerns among Muslims, uh, because the, the, the Quran itself, of course, is a revelation in language, or at least a revelation through language. Uh, it's very concerned itself with, with the nature of words and language. The Quran itself, of course, means something which was recited. Uh, and of course, there's that other th themes of language recitation, of the tongue, of expression, verbally, and also the notion of, of eye art, of signs and so on, that are perhaps beyond language in the Quran too. And so consequently, of course, some of the, the longest lasting and, and most, in a sense, typically Islamic intellectual disciplines are those of grammar and so on, of really trying to understand the nature and the possibilities uh, of, of language. So this is really something that is not, as it were, a, a strange thing Sufis are doing. It's something that's profoundly and fundamentally Islamic. 
And you yourself have translated, Michael, a, a good many classical Sufi texts from Arabic then into English. So how did you, uh, for your part, tackle this problem then of language, the problem of translating mystical experiences into words, and not least at that more complicated secondary level of translating thousand-year-old Arabic texts that themselves have tried to render mystic experiences into writing? Uh, well, translation is, um, uh, for me, and of course I'm a translator, so I would say this, it is um, uh, one of the most challenging and exciting things one can do. Uh, it, um, there, especially when one is dealing with texts that are so deep and so beautiful. Uh, so the time it takes to translate uh, every draft, uh, you know, dozens, hundreds of drafts, every draft allows one to recontact this text, which is uh, really um, uh, unlimited in the amount one can get from it, and to get it to know it in a new way, and then try to bring out the uh, the spirit and the pulse of uh, of that text in uh, in the most accurate way possible within uh, the English language system that I'm dealing with. So, uh, you know, many of these English, many of these texts uh, in Sufism are either poetry, formal poetry, or highly, highly poetic. So many of the issues that uh, translators of poetry have are issues that um, one will encounter in translating Sufi uh, texts. And so there's, a, you know, there's all the aspects of the rhythm. What is the thought rhythm in a text? Um, one could write about the same thing in many ways, but what is a thought rhythm that kind of uh, uh, these mas masterpieces, I would call them, have a thought rhythm that really engages the reader, holds the reader, um, and takes the reader through these different dimensions. And so trying to get that uh, thought rhythm in a language with different uh, 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 rhythmic uh, characteristics um, not just rhyme and meter, which we can't use as much in English because of the nature of English. Um, so we have to compensate. We have to find another way of getting that graceful dance between rhyme and, and meter um, and syntax. The way sometimes language goes with the rhythm and sometimes it goes against the rhythm, building up tension and release. All these things um, are part of... Uh, uh, the, the joy and agony of, of the translating. So um, these are, are just uh, some thoughts on, on the process of translating uh, these Sufi texts. Uh, the bringing across the sense of urgency in some of these texts is uh, uh, a major endeavor. How? Uh, if one takes the, uh, the remarkable visions of Nifuri 
that are in, uh, I believe it's chapter nine of Islamic, uh, early Islamic mysticism, where reality itself seems to appear at one thing and then as the opposite. And it's never quite clear who's talking to whom. Is God talking to Nifari or is Nifari talking to God? Who is speaking? Who's being spoken to? And throughout um, the uh, a cavalcade of striking images and um, a, um, a kind of deep interior dialogue of the most um, uh, elusive sort. So um, these are uh, some things that even just talking about it, I get cited, excited about going back and translating more of Nithin. So, um, but I want to make sure I have uh, time to read um, one passage before we go as part of the wrap-up. So uh, let me know when we're getting toward that time. Well, thank you, Michael. I mean, really, I mean, so many of us throughout the world, throughout history, have been so uh, indebted, often uh, <laughs> uh, ungratefully indebted to, to translators, who so actually to understand something of, of the joy of these labors as well as uh, somewhat of a of a relief. And as you mentioned, I mean, yeah, these are literary master, masterpieces as well as, 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 you know, religious texts. So turning to, to those of us who, who read these texts in, especially in, 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 in translation, but regardless, really, how, how would you recommend readers of Sufi texts go about reading them? That's to say, how would you recommend readers go about making sense of these texts? working with the, the conceptual terminology you laid out for us earlier and filling in then some of the gaps then, particularly in these poetic and elusive and often riddle sort of, you know, kind of a, a paradoxical text. How would you recommend readers go about filling in the gaps then, of it, in, implicit or even unspeakable knowledge? Um, a very tricky question. I. Um... I, I'm going to contemplate that for a minute before I venture a response. So um, I think that uh, the Sufi texts, and of course that would also apply to Sufi teachers uh, of uh, today, if uh, one is uh, involved with a Sufi organization or goes to Sufi events, um, they are often the teacher uh, uh, teachings are filled with examples from these old texts, but applied to new circumstances. They, uh, for me personally, they engage the uh, uh, central question of uh, how to live a meaningful life, a life of, uh, of authenticity. Uh, they they bring up the stakes involved. Um, uh, they uh, they express a certain profound vitality in the sense that they uh, that they are irrepressible. 
in uh, affirming uh, uh, the, me the meaningfulness of life. They don't have a simple formula to tell you, tell us what that meaning is, but they are irrepressible in telling us uh, that it is there uh, for us and in uh, engaging with us in, uh, in that quest. So um, my sense is they, one reads these early texts like uh, Kushairi and Siraj I mentioned, uh, I mentioned the fact that they don't, they're not set up in a linear systematic way. They're set up, um, you know, they combine elements of, um, of uh, uh, preaching, um, of, of philosophizing, uh, po poetic uh, eruptions, they turn to the reader and, and, and grip us, or they step back and allow, allow us to see something unfolding. And um, so to enjoy the, the different voices within these texts, they don't speak in the kind of uh, monotonical lecture format. Um, and they're very conversational. So they allow us to be part of the conversation. Uh, there's also the sense we're talking about paradoxes and uh, the uh, the notion of ineffability. Um, I always feel in reading Sufi texts uh, that, of course, they can never describe uh, an ineffable uh, thing. But what they try, what they do, is they put the mind in a, or the heart in a similar motion to which the Sufi uh, has, uh, has uh, given his or her life. So we might all not be ascetics like Rabia the mystic um, or ecstatics like Bistami, um, but uh, they have found ways to allow us um, to be enriched by uh, that immersive perspective um, in, um, in searching uh, uh, for the real or for God. And um, uh, so I often have the sense that you're, you're reading along and you have a sense it all comes together for a moment. And then when you go back to it, and you say, what was it? And then if you have that kind of fleetingness of understanding, I think um, my sense is that what that's a common experience of encountering these texts. That's such profound words, Michael, actually, really giving us a sense that these really are living texts. They're living because they're still being taught they're being taught by being read, but also just being people memorizing parts of them and they're coming up in teachings and conversations. And they're alive in the sense that they're, they're in a sense, communicating aspects of sort of the eternal life and, our, and the eternal aspects of our nature and indeed of human experience that are speaking to us and moving us. And uh, 
and changing or preparing us for, for change across the, the barriers of, of time. Perhaps the best way for us to close then is actually by hearing some of those words, by bringing them alive again, by reciting or reading them through your own uh, translations, Michael, that have, as the old original Latin words mean, translatio, you're carrying over these meanings then across the distances of geography and time. So yeah, if you could just read of your choice, one of your translations. Thank you. I'd like to read a, uh, a poem by Halaj, the famous uh, martyr of, uh, of Baghdad, um, who is uh, a central fig a figure in early Islamic mysticism. And this is a poem that really, I think, sums up a lot of what we are talking about today, but in uh, this uh, uh, inimitable uh, uh, poetry of uh, these verses by Halal. This is on page 302 and 303, if uh, anyone ever wants to come back to it. I was patient, but can the heart be patient of its heart? My spirit and yours blend together, whether we are near one another or far away. I am you, you, my being, end of my desire. The most intimate of secret thoughts enveloped and fixed along the horizon and folds of light. I'll read that again. The most intimate of secret thoughts enveloped and fixed along the horizon and folds of light. How? The how is known along the outside while the interior of beyond, to, and for the heart of being. Creatures perish in the darkened blind of quests, knowing intimations. Guessing and dreaming, they pursue the real, faces turned toward the sky, whispering secrets to the heavens, while the Lord remains among them, in every turn of time, abiding in their every condition, every instant. Never without him, they, not for the blink of an eye, if only they need, nor he for a moment without them. Professor Michael Sells, thank you so much for speaking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. Da 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 da